Welcome to Hot Plate, a post-foodie podcast. I'm your host, Joshna Maharaj. Today on Hot Plate with guest host Pei Chen, fair pay for BIPOC culinary talent, the truth about jerk, and curious moves from KFC. Uh, Pei, I have recently signed on with uh, Quell, which is a talent agency representing exclusively BIPOC talent in the hospitality industry. Um, And this has been the emergence of this uh, really came at a really fascinating time, right? It was in in the depth, uh, in the middle of the pandemic, right after this wave of racism and awareness around racism uh, kind of exploded. Um, and so the the idea that there, you know, this really seemed to be the right time and place uh, to do this kind of thing and make this kind of move. And to be honest, it's a thing that now feels like a really perfect fit, but I, I would have never really put that together. Uh, we brought in Trevor Louis, who is one half of the founding um, talent uh, for Quell. And I thought we'd bring him in on this conversation just to chat with him uh, a bit about intentions and what we're actually seeing about about. Uh, BIPOC folks in the industry uh, and and whether there is sort of a boost, you know, in awareness and attention. So hello, Trevor. Trevor, welcome. Thanks for having me, ladies. I'm really happy to be here and the opportunity to talk with you guys. Uh, Can you share with us a bit about your intention, like why this thing and why at this moment? I think if I looked at all the factors as to why we have Quell now, it's uh, it's a it's a it's a bunch of things uh, crossing paths just at the right time. And from a reflective point, I think about sort of the things that have been bugging me personally, uh, particularly around food and beverage and hospitality. You know, I've been in corporate for well over two decades before I went off on my own. And I work, I, you know, I, I, I came up in that corporate system and I, and I now, you know, I'm very reflective in terms of the system that I grew up in, that I was, <clears throat> that was in a way, quote unquote, built for me uh, to fit mm. into, but not necessarily was built necessarily for me, quote unquote, the ceiling was built for me, right? I was, right. I was essentially, doesn't have to be told to me, but I was essentially inside the system, uh, put within a realm of a place where I thought that people thought that I could only go to, whereas opposed to where I believe I could actually reach was much higher. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all these reflective points with that, and also being someone who went, fell back into the restaurant industry and started chefing again, you know, looking at how food and beverage and those that represent a bulk of the production and the heart and soul of our business, you know, where is the face of that these days? And so all these things fell together and 2020 was just like that year where we had the racism and the social injustice hit its peak. And then we had the points of the pandemic where our businesses stopped and we had to take a look at how we need to restructure them or, you know, the P word, the pivot word. And, all these thoughts just landed together. And I looked around at my peers and I looked around in the marketplace to see what does food and beverage or hospitality look like in North America compared to compared to the comparison of that to what the population actually looks like, right? right. What, what does the dynamic and the demographic of the market that spends the money, who eats the food, who cooks the food look like compared to what is presented from a marketing perspective or from a brand perspective? So I... I think with the timing of Quell and when you started it, it was great because there was this um, overall interest in having 
more diverse faces representing companies and brands in ways that we haven't seen before. So large corporations, small companies of every kind were suddenly like, ooh, okay, we need we need more than than the token uh, you know, ethnic face. Uh, we need more BIPOC representing our company and our brands, which will reflect the population more. So there was this demand. And I noticed through this past year, because, you know, I've been working in TV for two decades now, um, and I've always had people come to me for advice, especially in terms of money. Should I ask for money? Is it okay if I ask for this? Uh, people, I think in general, when we're new to any type of industry, uh, we're a little afraid to rock the boat. Women especially are afraid to ask for money, right? Because we should be happy to be there, happy to be invited. And I found in recent months, I was getting a lot more uh, messages from people saying, do you mind, would you, do you think this is okay? Is it okay what I was offered or is it okay to ask for this? And I've always been more than happy to help people negotiate because if you don't know the world, it's very intimidating and you're afraid to lose business. I think that comes with any sort of freelancer or contractor. Uh, you, you don't want to price yourself too high but you also don't want to be taken advantage of. Right. And I have noticed that a lot more of my peers and colleagues, um, Black, Indigenous, people of color, have been getting more opportunities to be a face or a voice, which I'm thrilled about. But what I was also finding out was they're being drastically undercut. So they're being undercut by the people who are trying to give them this opportunity, this platform. It's so amazing. We want you to represent our brand. But we know you don't know any better. Hmm. So we'll actually offer you half of what someone else might get because that half is still a better rate than you've ever been offered. And I noticed this happening a lot more, Trevor, and it was really bothering me. Like I... Yeah have guided people through some situations where they just didn't know. And the people who are offering them these quote unquote opportunities to be, uh, you know, to show their face, to share their opinions, to be a voice, they know better, but there's this still this sense of, Oh my goodness, we have opened the door for you. Pull up a chair. We're letting you join us. Uh, you know, we want you to be associated with this big, company and brand. We're so happy to have you here. And there's that feeling of, if you don't know better, wow, I, I feel appreciative to be here. Yet there's still many situations where they're being taken advantage of. So there's a couple of things that I can, I can sort of uh, uh, speak, uh, speak on this. One is I call it, there's like an a la carte menu, right. For, uh, for agencies that they use. If you've worked corporate, whether it's an agency or or supplier, anything, a marketing budget is a marketing budget, and so there's there's an amount of money allotted to a scope for work, and that scope of work will include talent and the work that they do. How someone who manages that amount of money is entirely up to them, as so long as they get the job done on budget or quote unquote under budget, that makes them look better. So when you take a look at it, I look at the a la carte and the a la carte starts with a number up here. And here's the figure that the ceiling is what you can reach to. But all in between there, the first conversation many times is we'd love to offer you the opportunity because you're an up and comer and you, you fit the mold of something we're looking to, to tap into. We think it would be great if you can do it for this level of exposure you've never had before. So the word exposure, 
right? We get that yes. all the time. My Publix, favorite. I get yeah. paid in it so often. Yeah. Because, <laughs> I also get paid I, in it so yeah, I, I, I remember going to the bank and offering the bank a mortgage payment in publicity and exposure, right? Yeah. And yeah. then, and then I paid off my mortgage that way. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then the next level, if you push back on publicity and exposure is, well, we can also give you some free product, right? Because yeah, I can use an entire year's worth of chicken stock, right? Something stupid like that. So you go from exposure. I've eaten blenders. Yeah. You've eaten blenders, right? You've traded blenders yeah. for bank payments. So you go yes. from exposure publicity to a cross hybrid of product. And then the next level is, well, we can also give you a little bit of money too. So we'll give you, you know, in-kind product and exposure plus a little bit of money. When we fair know in fair value market that there's actually a bundle of money sitting there that they don't want to touch because they want to save it for other things. And then when you get to money, like you say, pay, it's an offer of a fraction of the money that is particularly used for someone else who may be doing the exact same job but looks different from us. <clears throat> This is the challenge we have. And as an agency, as we're peeling this back, the imposter syndrome that we have developed and grown up with is something that keeps us back. And so there are a lot of people out there in our field who are just saying yes, because for the first time, they feel like they're wanted for once. And this need of, of wanting to be welcomed and being important in some aspect is enough for some people, particularly younger people in the industry. And what we're trying to do and coach people is, you know, we t we've turned down a lot of work. And our whole goal here is we want to change the system because for every person who does something for free, and listen, there are things that we will do for free. When it comes to philanthropy and charity, we what we call is we call that conscious marketing. We take a look at that and see what the value of that. We will do it because it's good for the community, but we also measure that based on what it's going to cost us. Right. Because there's nothing that says that you can't be conscious about how you spend your money in marketing when it comes to philanthropy. You're still being smart when it comes to business. But this whole other notion of a business who is profiting off of you and wants to use you but not pay you for the money they're going to get paid, that has to stop. And so the words, the wise words we're trying to impart on younger people in the hospitality industry, not necessarily younger people, just people in the industry in general, particularly BIPOC, is stop doing stuff for free because it's actually hurting the movement for us. If you want to pick up the phone and call us just for a pointer, we'd be happy to give you the pointers because I think we need more people in the industry to provide a little bit more mentorship and education around, you know, how, how to measure themselves compared to the rest of the industry. And don't even like, I don't even want to get into the whole thing of what I call culinary racism and how food from people of color is depicted compared to traditional European colonial food in the marketplace. Right. Like, you know, we talked about this, that, for me, I can only sell a bowl of noodles for so much money, but you can charge thirty-two. <laughs> you can you can charge thirty-two dollars for carbonara, and I love carbonara, but carbonara is pork jowl, pasta, eggs, and cheese. I tell you, if I do a ramen, it's nineteen ingredients. It takes three days to make a broth, so I know what the value of that bowl of ramen should be. But society has told me I can only charge so much for it. You know, Trav, I um I like what you're saying, and I I love the you know, the goal and your, the purpose of the agency. And I, I would love it if people thought of these situations, not as um, competition. I think this is an industry that is full of, you know, undercutting and competition and fear. We all want work. Uh, we all want jobs. And I'm often trying to say to people, don't 
you know, people will have different fees, different rates, because it varies, of course, depending on experience, right? So a young person who's new um, might, it should be perhaps in some cases more affordable than a person who's got 10 years of experience in media training under their belt, let's say. Uh, but in raising the awareness and the expectations for your your talent and your roster, uh, it helps everyone collectively. So if I'm quoting a fee for something, but they're also being, they're asking you about your, your talent, if we can be building each other up, then great. If suddenly someone's taking half, then it brings us all back to the bottom. And I, I wish more people understood that. And that's not just this food industry or um, hospitality. It's, it's, a, it's whether you're a graphic designer or you're you know, a web developer. Um, there should be a somewhat of an expected going rate. And the minute someone says, oh, no, I'll do all of that work mm. for it's, so much less, that becomes the minimum wage. Right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, you could, you could look at it, you can draw comparisons to sports and movies as well, right? You're not going to pay an actor that no one knows about compared to what you would pay, obviously, like, like a Brad Pitt. I don't know, is Brad Pitt still... A list. He still makes money. I he think he's still doing makes, okay. He gets he's doing paid okay. Nicely, yeah. The challenge, and because this becomes a debate with people who don't understand, this is not affirmative action. What this is is understanding that merit is first. But when you're disallowed to actually showcase your merit based on the color of your skin, merit doesn't even count at that point, right? But at the end of the day, a job for us means we have to be qualified for it. I don't want you to hire me for a job to represent oyster sauce just because I'm Asian. What I'd rather be hired for is an olive oil. Because if I look at someone like Joshna or Bashir or Tafik on our roster, who are all classically trained chefs, they should be given the opportunity to represent what their trade and their skill is, not based on their ethnic background, right? So one of the things that I was getting tired of is always getting phone calls to do Asian recipes and Asian ingredients. And, you know, perfect example is someone like Bashir. Right? Bashir Mounier, he's an educator and an activist. He's uh, born in Somalia, raised in Rome, Italy, is fluent in Italian and is classically trained Italian chef, but has worked all over the world. But when you look at him, he's not what you would expect when you say Italian, right? But he cooks Italian like the best of them. And so if someone's calling to have a campaign on the best ragu or sauce, I would put Bashir in that job because from a merit perspective, he deserves to be considered. But for many of us, we're not considered because we don't look the part, right? But if you flip the tables and a French Eurocentric Michelin star restaurant decides to do an ode to Asian food for a week, they can sell our food for three times the price and it's okay. Right? So these are the things that we're just trying to draw attention to. Um, and it goes back to sort of like the third component of what the agency is for. And the third part is about creating a direct path of mentorship for youth in our industry for those in communities who really enjoy hospitality. So they're part of a program, but they don't see a clear path to being successful because at the, rea the end of the day, the reality is, is I look at someone like Albert Adria or Massimo Batura as amazing chefs. But if you are a new Canadian from, let's say, Somalia, living in Northern Rexdale, going to TCI in a culinary program, 
looking at someone like Maslin Batura, who you are very fond of, there is not a relatable perspective of your path to get there. What we have to start to do in part is convincing businesses and these round tables to stop having discussions about other people when those people are not at the table. And someone said to me in an interview a few weeks ago, Trevor, I, I love that perspective of having someone from the BIPOC community at the table to help discuss you know, changes to help the BIPOC community or further opportunities. And the question was, so if there's 10 seats, who would you displace in order to put your seat there? And I said, who says we have to displace anyone? Just because you had 10 seats for 40 years, why can't you just set an 11th seat, right? <laughs> so so there's, there's this part of the colonial culture or even today's North American Western culture that thinks that this movement is about taking things back. I don't want anything from anyone. Everything that we want, we want to earn it. But what I want is I want the opportunity to earn it, which is the big difference. So no, don't take anything away from someone who's earned it because that is rightfully yours. Let's set a new seat so that we can be part of the conversation. That's a good start. That this remind this reminds me so much of a quote that I heard from Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, obviously because we lost her this year. But she uh, she has a very famous quote uh, from early on in her career where she says, "We ask no favor from our brethren, but other than simply that they take their feet off of our necks." And, and you know, I I want to take this opportunity to say that you know this even though we're, there's, there's a lot of challenges ahead still. Um, there are, and we've experienced it ourselves, otherwise we wouldn't be experiencing you know, a, a, a good level of, of, uh, uh, of success so early is that there are companies and there are allies and brands that get it. And we've been lucky enough to be supported and done jobs for, for, for clients out there that, that got it before this whole 2020 thing. They understood. Um, and we need to, we just need more of them, right? Some of these guys that get it, they got it way before everything happened and it's nothing new to them. They're just, they're doubling down and we need more of those businesses out there. There are still businesses out there who 100% know what they're doing is not the right thing, but just they're, they're afraid. And, you know, we, we go on this adage of basic math, right? We look at, we look at an equation and Steph, Stephanie and I had these long conversations about companies where we knew we had to have difficult discussions or companies that we knew we had to walk away from is that there are companies who have banked on their core, on their core clientele, right? And their core, core clientele could potentially be, let's say 40, 50% of their overall revenue. And they're afraid if they take a left turn to be more inclusive and market to a different clientele that this could alienate their core. Well, when we do the math, we believe that if you were to make that turn, the gains, the net gains on a new clientele in a marketplace best on demographic far exceeds on what you may potentially lose from your core. But still people are scared to step away from the guys that have been paying their bills for the longest time. There really is, there really is in this scenario, this like, this conflict between or this tension between taking a risk and doing the right thing. I listen, if you, if people took a moment to um, actually consciously uh, register their experiences at higher end restaurants, it's almost the exact same thing, right? The nicest interactions are generally right at the door when the doorman or security guard is opening door for you or you're greeted by the hostess and you're actually the food and drinks are run by a back back 
back boy, bus boy, or food runner. And then you look into the kitchen and the guys that are sweating it and, and cleaning are the people that look like us. And so the backbone of our industry, right? Take a look at it. The backbone of our industry that makes the least amount of money are generally BIPOC individuals from lower income communities who are trying to make it, who are really running the ship. And the people that we're actually tipping and the money going to is the person that actually just came to take your order and is giving you your bill, right? And the challenge is with so much of people that look like us, because we've been, I mean, I've been a dishwasher, a bus, I've been in all of it, right? Where do all of us go at some point? Because there's so many of us in the industry, but there's very few of us that look like you and me who are in the positions of management and executive and ownership. And so that's part of the issue about creating this clear path for people. We should be able to start somewhere and find a way to get to where we want to be, but not be held back because we look a certain way. So if we're talented and we have the ability, we should be we should be ushered as high potential and put right through the system like everyone else should be. I like it. Ushered in as high potential. <laughs> in, in corporate, in corporate, we used to call those hypos, right? So we were we were actually Amazing. part of our part of our job was to try to find hypos within your company. And oh. and that oh. hypo, which is a high potential, could be anyone. It could have been a cleaner, uh, a doorman, uh, anyone that just because they were doing a job that was on a lower pay scale and didn't seem as important as anyone else, but in, in my mind, that job is just as important as every other position in, in an establishment. That person might have the highest level of potential, but no one's given them the opportunity to even have the conversation with them, right? Yeah. And and some of the people that I've, some of the best people I found were in those positions, right? And we have a lot of them in our industry, actually, that people don't talk about. Interesting that what has emerged is the, the notion that we all have some degree of imposter syndrome, right? We all have to learn to ask for more, you know what I mean? To, to, to jump up to higher pay grades and to, and we've left money on the table is yes. the key piece yes. here, right? I do want to thank both of you because you guys are mean so much to the community, mean so much for what you do and what you stand for. You are leaders in our, in, in our community. Oh, this is, it's super exciting, Trev. Thank you for, for sharing this with us. Uh, thanks for doing this work. It's really, really exciting. Thank you for the opportunity to, to speaking with you about all of this. Okay, Pay, let's talk jerk. Uh, jerk chicken and, and jerk, jerk, cult, jerk food culture is something that is alive and well here in Toronto. Uh, and it's something, you know, it's something that we all know very well. And, and it's also like a, a signature brand of Jamaican culture along with reggae and good times. Um, it's, uh, I've realized that the, the history of it is actually quite diluted, right? I, I knew a little bit just from visiting Jamaica myself, uh, about the idea of the low fires in pimento forests where enslaved people were attempting to escape, right? And they had the low fires so they wouldn't be detected by, you know, <laughs> surveying helicopters and that sort of thing. But what I did not know is that the roots of jerk cooking are actually about indigenous resistance uh, to foreign colonial domination. Uh, and this this piece that I just found really sort of opened that up for me. Uh, and I was like, I was like, I was so grateful for the fuller knowledge of this, right? And it sort of it changed my understanding a bit, right, about uh, the history of this food. Um, well, first of all, I really I've always loved jerk chicken, jerk 
food, but I didn't really know the history of it. I don't right. think I know the history of most of the things I've eaten, right, to be honest. Right, right, yeah. um, you know, I've never really delved into his, the history of any dish. I might like a dish, then, you know, Google it. Like, where is this from? Or mm. where did it, you know, I, I think that's a fascinating um, history for jerk. And to learn about, you know, what it actually means to have, uh, let's say, you know, jerk chicken, for example, how was it really supposed to be prepared versus what we might call jerk, um, right. which can be definitely, you know, diluted or, or dumbed down. And I think part of um, this also goes to the fact that, you know, in more recent years, even this past year, I would say, um, is that cultural appropriation of certain mm. types of, of foods. And I think that blew up a lot with, for example, what happened with Bon Appetit uh, in 2020, yep. where they would kind of, they would call something um, a traditional, oh, there was like, I think it was like that traditional um, Haitian soup or something, but it was not at all a version of what was traditional. Right. And the idea that people are making food or attributing a certain cultures to a dish that doesn't have any sort of authenticity yep. uh, to this new version of, of the dish or menu item that is, is being presented. Um, and that becomes, that's a sticky topic. That's, I agree. You know, one to, it's, it's hard to explain a uh, like, yes, this, it's wrong or no, it's fine. There's a lot of gray area. I, I completely agree with you because it uh, part of the, the vibe of 2020 was also the, the, the stuff with Alison Roman and that stew. Right. It's the, yeah, she uh, had a stew. Everyone had a stew. Everyone had a stew, but really her stew was like a coconut fish curry or something. You know, it was the way it was, yes. all the ingredients, all the, the processes uh, were exactly a, a, a South Indian curry, but she stayed far away from, from calling it that, uh, which I think is just sort of like a, another sort of convolution of an appropriation piece. She just took the thing itself, but wanted to like, I don't know, soften the edges or rework the, the, de the deep ethnicity of the thing to make it more palatable or accessible right Un under the guise of accessibility i think a lot of this um this uh, this appropriation can happen very very easily and then the question is um can you call it like it in the particular story that you're referencing i think they said that um mcdonald's for example had like a jerk uh, right. sandwich on yeah. their menu um and then you know jamaicans are like wait a minute this this is not this you is can't sure. use that word, right? You can't call this that. Okay, so a, a way that this uh, I've seen this show up in my life as a recipe developer has been about the insistence of these sort of weird hyphenated names for things. Like, we don't want to call it jerk uh, because potentially we can't because it's not actually really jerk. So instead, we're going to say it's Caribbean style or jerk inspired. Um, and while I understand, uh, I understand the intention behind it. I, I don't love this either because it seems really, uh, generic and non-committal. And, and my instinct is like, if you're going to do something, do something. But I mean, okay. On, on the flip side, what if you wanted just to have some of the flavors of jerk? And so you right. bought a bottled, you know, um, sauce. And I guess maybe the point is we have to make space for all of those experiences. Somebody who wants to go and find themselves pimento wood and cut it down and do this thing versus somebody who just wants a little taste and, and can pull it out of a, you know, quite happily out of a bottle. 
Yeah, and I think it's happened a lot where uh, you'll have certain communities who will, um, you know, identify perhaps a, like a well-known um, food writer or magazine or restaurant or publication of some sort and bring attention to it and say, wait a minute, you know, this is actually very traditional to um, our our history and our ancestors, and you've um, you've taken it and completely changed it and i guess if you're going to if i want to be like devil's advocate it's well can you take a dish that is not from your background or culture and modify it hmm. uh and still attribute it to the culture or country of, of which you are not a part of can you still do that right it's such a it's such a complexity because i think about like because now we're talking about authenticity, obviously, right? This is mm-hmm. the, the next move here. And I think so much just in my own life, right? Uh, a chicken curry was something my mother taught me how to make. And it was something that her mother taught her how to make. Uh, and we make it very much the same, you know, very, very similarly. Uh, but the bottom line is the way I make a chicken curry and the way my grandmother makes it are two very different dishes. Uh, right. I have put there's the modern stuff. There's my life as a chef has sort of changed that a little bit. Uh, and so uh, I, I like sometimes I think that we need to just really uh, abandon our desires around authenticity because it's a bit of a fantasy. Right. It's a bit of a it's a bit of nonsense because it's not it's not really a thing because I'm not, there's not there's no purity in the way I make my chicken curry. I make it the way I like it, the way I, I think it should taste, which is not necessarily the same as my grandmother's idea. Right. But you, but the thing is, is that you have the grandmother. Right. Uh, that's true. That's true. Someone okay. else who's like, Hey, I, I saw Joshna's recipe. Right. 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 This, I just found this on the internet. Right. And now I'm just going to like make it change a couple of things and call it my, you know, uh, my original Indian curry. Yes. Yes. Okay. I like that. That's helpful because now I think what we're talking about here is that this is about context and intention. Right. Yeah. And and that we don't live separately from who we are and where, you know what I mean? And the places that we live in, we, we, we have to consider that actually in these moves. It's a tough one because I will tend to side with people who say, um, wait a minute, this, you've appropriated my culture by trying to make a food trendy that has for many years been seen, you know, uh, perhaps perceived as cheap or lesser than, and right. then suddenly you're willing to pay uh, $18 for your, um, I don't know, your super bone broth. Yeah. Or your butter chicken poutine. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And, and I can see why people um, get upset about that. Um, And then I think that there, it does make people afraid to experiment with flavors and spices. Uh, And I think it does come down to, just uh, it's hard to pinpoint it's hard to say like well if you do xyz then it's okay but But part of it i think comes down to acknowledging perhaps yeah the the origins yes and it's it's like sometimes i think that like in canada here we've gotten really uh, accustomed to the idea of land acknowledgements 
which I think are super important. And it's, it's really helpful for us to connect to our settler identities, you know, and to really, uh, you know, acknowledge uh, Indigenous history and presence in this country. But sometimes I think that there's a version of that that is required around this kind of food stuff, like a moment to say when, you know, if I'm going to go somewhere and, and cook jerk or Mexican food, I remember I visited Mexico and I came back and I made a bunch of things that I learned, but to take a moment to say, this is not mine. I have learned this thing. And this is, you know, this is, this is what I've pulled from this. Um, that I, I don't know, that may be unrealistic, but I feel like some a version of that acknowledgement can really change this entire discussion. Uh, yeah, I agree. And I think that happens easier in certain uh, forms and others. So like yes. in print, for example, because you can you can write out the words, right, you right, can write right. out an introduction. Um, you know, maybe on a cooking show, it's a little bit more challenging because totally. things can be edited or, you you know, you've got three minutes to get into a recipe. So it's um it's a hard one that I think people are still trying to navigate and the, the safe way to do it, I think, is using those hyphenations that you I, mentioned, yeah, which is the way of, uh, you know, trying to make sure you don't offend anyone i mean i don't love it either but i can appreciate when someone says this is um ew, uh, i don't know a korean inspired ribs or right. something right but um it, it, it does become a challenge because you can't you won't please everyone but there are certain actions that i think can be taken uh to make it more acceptable there's, it's it's the attitude that you approach the entire thing with, right? It's got it. That's got to be involved for some. Okay, Pay. I've got sort of a wild piece to talk about here, and this is uh, about KFC. They are really branching out. And uh, I don't know if you've seen any of this, but two things have emerged uh, that I want to bring to conversation. One is uh, a Lifetime short movie uh, about uh, a sort of scandalous love affair with, uh, by, with including involving Colonel Sanders. Uh, the curious twist, obviously, is that they cast Mario Lopez of Saved by the Bell and other uh, reality show fame as Colonel Sanders, which was the entire thing was a bit weird. And then they have recently come up with this video game console that is also a chicken warmer. And I'm just like, it just seems so wild and curious. Um, and have you have you seen either of these things? I saw the poster for the movie, which I thought was a joke, like most people. But seeing Mario Lopez as Colonel Sanders was so disturbing to me. I did not, I had no interest in watching, I had no interest <laughs> in watching the movie. Um, and I did see the story about the gaming console, which I'm not a gamer, but most people I know are. I also... I mean, okay, it's a cute idea that your video game can also warm your chicken. But I mean, I have I have two things in my home that can warm chicken. And that's uh, <laughs> an oven and if I needed to, a microwave. So yeah. I don't think I need a separate console for it. It's, it's a very cute novelty idea. I don't know a single person I could gift it to. No, no, me neither. And you are right. I watched the whole 16-minute Lifetime short movie. Did it change was, your life? Uh, it did not at all. There was no... I was so bothered the mario lopez as colonel sanders and they like grayed up his hair and gave him that mustache uh, that facial hair that we recognize from the image on the side of the bucket right it yeah so bizarro uh and i mean look clearly obviously the 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 intention behind this is to sell more of their chicken so i mean this this idea of 
a video game console that warms the chicken. Um, clearly, it's a sort of grand stunt. And and I, I mean, obviously, too, the other piece is like, just sit down in front of that screen. Do not get up. Put the bucket of chicken on top of the thing. You don't, you know what I mean? Don't need to get up and walk to the kitchen like a chump. Uh, well, chicken, that's so far. Right. <laughs> exactly. Right. Your chicken will be warm right where your butt is. Uh, and hey, you know what? It's Joshua. It's a it's a novelty thing where it's like a gaming console that's keeping your chicken warm. It's fun. It's, yeah. I mean, you know, if you didn't have the money for it, maybe you'd keep a little insulated bag by your feet for your chicken. Right. Uh, it's something that not you know any of your friends will probably have. Uh, so it's like it's a conversation starter. And, yep. you know, they put money into these things to get people to think about KFC. And here we are talking about it. So it was money well spent. That's it. Good on you, KFC. And thanks for giving us a laugh, too. If you're enjoying our podcast, you can support us at patreon.com slash hotplatepod. Hotplate is part of the Frequency Podcast Network. Please consider leaving us a rating or review. It helps others find us. You can follow Pei on social media at Pei Chen on Instagram and Twitter. You can follow me at Joshna Maharaj on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Hot Plate is produced by Mirella Amato and Dennis Coyne with original music by Dave Bell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>